Good morning, everybody. There we go. Sounding good, sounding loud. Um, so there are some things that are just kind of difficult to describe, and it's why we resort to the phrase, you had to be there if you're trying to tell a story that you think is hilarious and you're getting blank stares back from the person to whom you're talking. Uh, there's just some things that are hard to describe. It's just hard to, to explain what that experience is like. And I think that's true uh, for a wide variety of issues, not the least of which is just like a variety of church things, things that happen at church that are hard to describe, like a feeling, right, that it's hard to give words to. Um, and I wanted to walk you through just a couple things that I think are common experiences at church that are difficult to give words to. And it's almost like if you see someone's expression, you see someone's face, you're like, okay, I know how that feels. So, so for example, uh, if you grew up around church, you kind of have discovered that you get a spot, a certain spot that's your spot. And when you come into church and someone is sitting in that spot, that feeling that you get, I got a picture up here I want to show you. You notice the youth group is like leaning way over now. They did not heed Alex's advice, but yeah, that's, that's a feeling. Now, this is true, and it, kids are always a wonderful problem to have in church, but kids have this little internal thing going on in their heads that, that they know exactly when in a service to be the most disruptive, and it, they've got just a look on their face. If you go to the next one, please. Kids, you'll be able to relate to this one. You just can go to the next slide. Um, I didn't type it up, by the way, Paul. Paul's like pointing out grammar errors there on the screen. Just common experience. I've been there. I know how that feels. Um, here's another common experience. This one may be a little oddly specific. If, uh, if, you've ever, if you've ever been in youth group, you'll notice I do, I make that motion too, as if I'm calming down raptors. People who are listening to this online have zero clue what is going on right now. They have no idea. Uh, I, now, this is true. So, in churches, in, in, especially in our church, the, the teenagers tend to sit away from their parents, right? They don't always sit next to their parents. Some do, you know, but a lot of them sit over here. So the way we've arranged this room is that you can get a good view as to what everybody's doing. And I, even when I'm preaching, I'll notice this sometimes, you'll notice parents checking in on their kids. And it kind of looks like this, uh, this next one. It's <laughs> kind of popping up, looking over there. Is he going, you pay attention. He's talking about disobedience. That's you. This one really isn't an experience, but I just thought this was hilarious. Go to the next one if you would. Um, there's a fine line between a long sermon and a hostage situation. <laughs> These, uh, these capture uh, uh, sentiments or, or feelings that are hard to describe exactly, you know, and, and when you see an image of it or you, you see an expression on someone's face, you're like, ah, oh, I, can, I can relate to that. I, I, can, I can feel that. And that's kind of what I want to talk about. We're, we're starting a new sermon series, uh, and it's called Shine the Light, and, and believe me, we're going to make a transition here. But it's this idea of, like, how do you describe something that's tough to describe or, or maybe indescribable? How do you, like, give words to something that doesn't really have words? 
Now, so I imagine that if you were in, uh, if you happened to get a chance to know one of the apostles firsthand, and you were talking to them, one of the questions you would have for the apostles is like, what was it like to be around Jesus? What was that experience like? And I'm not talking about miracles. I'm not talking about, you know, his teaching. Just like, what was it like to be around him? What was the, the experience of being with Jesus? What was that like? How would that feel? How would you, like, what, walk away from an encounter with Jesus? What would that be like? And, and I imagine the apostles got that question. Um, and I imagine they had to try to describe what it was like to be with Jesus. And we have in John chapter 1, starting in verse 1, the apostle John's attempt at answering that question. This is what it was like. This is how I can put it in words. Here, here, here he goes. He says, in the beginning was the word. This is Jesus. In the beginning, this word existed. And he's writing to a, a very specific audience that kind of has a little bit of history with some of these terms. And he says, and the word was with God... And the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Like, he was eternal. Verse 3 says, Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. Again, it's kind of like a little, feels a little bit repetitive, but there's, a, there's almost a poetic quality to what he's saying. He is eternal and he created everything. That's what it was like to be around him. But he says in verse 4 something interesting uh, that we want to pick up on. He says, In him was life. And that life was the light of all mankind. And what we want to focus on, especially throughout the next three or four weeks as we talk about shine the light, we want to talk about this quality of, of what it would have been like to be around Jesus. This, this understanding of he was light. He was light. He was life. And I think that it's important to understand because in our pursuit of discipleship, like following Jesus, if we understand up to a better degree who he was, I think we'll have a better sense of like what it is to follow him, what it is to be drawn to him. Because I think that this is true, and I think this is also a common experience. Sometimes for Christians, we feel compelled by Christ, we're drawn to him, we're interested, we're excited, and other times we're a little bit apathetic. Well, Jesus, that's good, I've heard that all my life, but I'm just not, what, what, it, what about him? What, what was it like to be around him? And I think the better idea we get, the better sense we get, the better disciples we're going to be, because we're going to be more drawn to who he really was. So, John uses this word light, and it's this ancient metaphor. It goes all the way back to the beginning. In the beginning, there was nothing but chaos, nothing but darkness, and God said, let there be light. That's the very front of your Bibles. It starts off with this idea, let there be light. And he didn't create the sun until a few days later, so there's something different going on there. Let there be light. David talked about this in a little bit more poetic language in, uh, in the Psalms, and he talked about, God, you are my light, you are my salvation. One of the Psalms we know very well, Psalm 119 says, you are a light to my feet, a lamp to my path, or a lamp to my feet, light to my path. Um, but it's this idea of like light. There's something about that concept. In fact, in the tabernacle, when God was saying, here's the instructions I'm giving you guys for what it's like to worship me, to interact with me, I'm going to make you, you have to make a lampstand, and that thing has to be lit from evening till morning, every day. It always has to be lit to acknowledge or, or, or to uh, exemplify the presence of God, like this light there in the presence uh, of God. Um, in the book of Ephesians, Paul says that we are children of light. That we are children of light. We live in a kingdom of light. And in the end of the book, at the end of the Bible, the last page of the book of Revelation, the Bible says you won't even need a son in eternity because the Lamb of God, the Lord God, will be your light. It's this old metaphor. It's very, it's very interesting. But you read that and you're like, okay, cool. That's nice. doesn't really clear anything up. Jesus is the light. That's nice. He 
makes things brighter, makes things clear. Yeah, but what does it really mean? What does it mean that, that he is the light? When, when John sat down, when he's, when he's thinking about, like, how do I describe the experience of being around Jesus, and he reaches for this metaphor that has existed in Scripture through, for centuries, there's something big going on there that I think if we can discover, if we can unearth, it will help us be better disciples. Because we'll be more drawn to Jesus. So what are we talking about to say that Jesus is the life? What is being, or light, what is being described? So we're going to break this down into to two basic parts. There's a lot more we could talk about, but these are two like overarching kind of ideas in this, to this regard. First of all, light is what we'd say the confidence of truth. Light is the confidence of truth. Just a little bit abstract here, but light, light is the confidence of truth. Have you ever uh, been walking through your house at night? You don't want to disturb anybody, so you don't want to turn any lights on. And even though you've lived in the same house for years, and even though the furniture has been in the same place for years, you still have bumped into it in the night. You know what I'm talking about. Um, This has been a little while back, but uh, I went down to our family room, which is a lower level, and it's very dark. And I was moving fast. I was, like, trying to grab something and leave. I don't remember. I was moving pretty quickly. And I completely forgot that there was a knee-level coffee table in the center of the room. So I'm moving pretty fast, and I discovered something. I'm not very good with anatomy, but I discovered there's a spot on your knee that if you hit it just hot right and just hard enough, you can pass out. <laughs> this is true. Going through my room, hit that spot, hit it just right, and I have this internal thought. I had this thought. I'm, the thought was, you know what, I'm just going to lay on the floor for a little bit. Whatever I had been doing was forgotten, and I was just, I'm just going to lay on the floor. And my, like, fading thought as I was losing consciousness was like, wow, I didn't know you could die from a minor knee injury. <laughs> and then, I, you know, I'm, who knows, a couple seconds later, I wake up a little bit of drool, like, whoa, what happened? What was that? And Crean said she had heard, like, some sound of a body falling to the ground. <laughs> that was me. That was me. I found that spot. I found that spot. I never want to find it again. Now, the difference between, like, doing something like that, stubbing your toe, bumping into a door or a wall, and you're like, I'm glad nobody else is here because that's embarrassing, or whatever it is, is that we don't tend to do those things over and over again. Like, we bump into, you know, we pass out, or we bump into a piece of furniture, or we hit a wall, maybe we turn the light on, but we're a little more careful, we're a little more cautious next time. We don't do it again, or again, and again, and again. And if you do, you've got a problem that you need to fix. Now, the, the issue is, though, if there is a metaphor for life, like bumping into sharp furniture in the dark, the problem is, is humans do that again and again and again and again. And we just keep running through the basement as if this time the coffee table's not going to be there. And lo and behold, it's there again. And we bump it again and we hurt ourselves again. For example, if you're having a tough time wrapping your mind about, around like a moral concept, maybe you'll, you're thinking, this ill-advised purchase... Obviously, you don't think it's ill-advised, but the rest of us can see that. This ill-advised purchase will definitely make me happy. This is the thing that I have been missing my entire life. This will fill the void. I buy this, and this will change my life for the better. And you buy it, and you're happy for a few moments, maybe a week or two, and then you realize, man, I spent a lot of money. I'm in debt. What do I do now? And I'm not happy. I know A different purchase will fill the void in my life. A different way of going into debt. And we make that same mistake again and again and again. Hmm, that's strange. 
Maybe this ill-advised job change or achievement or advancement. It's not like it's wrong to do those things, but maybe we're searching after something that we're having a hard time finding. And this time, this job change will definitely bring me a sense of purpose and accomplishment in my life. I'll have to burn the candle at both ends, neglect my family, my faith, but you know what? This will fill that void in my heart. And we pursue that. And we give our time and attention to our job instead of maybe other things that are more important. And we still don't feel fulfilled. And then we think, you know what? Maybe a different job will fill that void in my life. And we keep running into the coffee table again and again and again. Now maybe if those two examples don't fit you, how about this? Maybe it's a relationship. I, I, I got married to fill the void in my life and that will give me fulfillment and achievement or I started dating this person for that purpose and I, I pursued this relationship because I needed some sort of sense of self-worth and I thought they could give it to me and then I'm not experiencing that. So maybe it's in a different relationship. Maybe it's in a different person. And we keep running into the furniture again and again and again. Now, those examples may be too big. Maybe you're like, my life isn't, I'm not, I'm not that kind of crazy. Like, that's not me. But the small, like, let's minimize it a little bit so maybe you can find a hat that fits you. Because it doesn't have to be big things like that. It can be choices to be petty. It can be choices to be selfish again and again and again and again. It can be choices to, to not forgive someone again and again and again. And we're just running through basements and there's furniture in the way and we keep hurting ourselves. And we're like, what's going on? What's going on? The Bible describes this as walking in darkness. The moral equivalent of running through a basement full of furniture and wondering like, why do I keep getting hurt? Why do I keep stubbing my toe? So you're with John and you ask, what is it like to be around Jesus? And I think he might say something like, being around Jesus was like you were in a dark room and somebody lit a candle. And, and you begin to be able to see things for what they really were. That, that choice that you thought would bring you happiness, you begin to be able to see a little further down the road and realize that's not where happiness is or was or ever was. You begin to see things just a little, a little bit better. In a, in, in a dimly lit environment, sin can look good. Bad choices can look good. But as the light dawns, we begin to see, oh, this is the reality of what I'm dealing with. I think being around Jesus was like being around a light when everything else was dark. And I think we've all probably had an experience simply like, like that. Now, it's not just that it brings us information. It's not just truth. It's not just like Jesus is truth, but it's not just that. It's a reassurance that truth brings. And this is a little bit of an abstract idea, but there's a reassurance of having the truth. Um, last summer, we took the youth group to Valley Fair, and it feels like we are always able to pick the day of the year that has the weirdest weather. And in some cases, it's great because there's a threat of rain all day, and we have the place to ourselves, no lines or whatever. Valley Fair is an amusement park, for those of you that don't know. Um, and this year, it was kind of the same thing. It was supposed to rain all day, and the rain had held off, and it had been a pretty decent day, cooler weather, pretty nice. And, and so we had decided to stay a little later than we originally planned. Well, as soon as we got everybody together, and we're like, okay, everybody, we're going to stay a couple more hours, and all right, back to scattering wherever you were, whatever you were doing, then it started raining. <laughs> and then the dark clouds started rolling in, and I was like, oh, great. Okay, so now, you know, I make everybody separate. They always have to be in groups uh, of four. I don't understand why you'd be in a group of three. You have to have that one person riding by themselves on the roller coaster. That's awful. 
groups of four, groups of even numbers, uh, four or more. And uh, so I have to try to text everybody, all right, hey, guys, I think we need to leave. And I'm trying to gather them all back up. Of course, it takes forever to do that. And the clouds are getting darker. It's just, you know, getting worse and worse. And I'm gathering most people. And finally, we got everybody together. I'm like, all right, you know, it's raining. Everybody's soaked. Let's get out to the truck or let's get out to the van. And then the lights in the park went out. <laughs> Lost electricity. Which is quite the contrast, right, if you're at a place where there's just all kinds of things going on and then the lights go out. And then the storm sirens went off. And I'm like, ah, oh, I missed it by that much. And I don't know why I was upset. I guess I don't really want to be in a van with a bunch of teenagers if there's a tornado chasing us. But I was. I was like, oh, no. And so the staff herded us all into the storm shelters, which were also the bathrooms. And they moved, they moved us back in there. You, most of you guys remember this. Moved us back in there. And it is dark, dark, dark dark. You can't see your hand in front of your face dark. And then finally somebody pulls out their cell phone, you know, the modern equivalent of the, the candle to the flashlight and turns the light on. And it's just like, it's like you feel better when there's light. There's just a, a sense of like, okay, things are better because there's a little bit of light. And we ended up being fine. Full disclosure, I was actually at the front of the bathroom watching for tornadoes because I would love to see one. <laughs> My quest continues. I did not see one that night. Uh, but the kids were safe. Don't worry about the kids. <laughs> You may have had to bring in another driver to drive them home, but they were all right. But it's that reassurance. It's like somebody turned on a light, and it just gives you a little bit of sense of safety and comfort. It's, it's reassurance. It's not just truth, because truth is out there, and sometimes truth can be harsh, but there's a reassurance of truth, and I think that's what John was trying to describe. Being around Jesus was like this reassurance that you have found the truth. Who, who else would we go to but you? You are the way. You are the truth. You are the life. There's a reassurance with that. Reassurance of finding the truth. Because life in the darkness is confusing and unsettling. What am I on earth to do? Darkness gives us contradictory answers. And Jesus turns on the light and he says, you're on earth to love me by loving people. Oh, that helps. Okay, thank you. I've been pursuing all kinds of things. Well, how am I supposed to treat people that hate me? And darkness would say, well, you'd be mean right back. You'd be petty right back. You show them who's boss. And Jesus turns on the light. And he says, no, bless them. Oh, okay. That's good. We think like, oh, yeah, accumulating stuff. That'll make me happy, right? And darkness says, yeah, that'll make you happy. That sounds good. And Jesus turns on the light. And he says, no, no, no. You'll, you'll be much happier. It's more blessed to give it away than it is to get it. You'll be happier. Solomon described this experience of light in this way, and I think this is a beautiful proverb. Proverbs chapter 4, Proverbs chapter 4, verse 18 says this, The path of the righteous is like the morning sun, and it's shining ever brighter. As you step further and further toward this relationship with Christ, it gets brighter and brighter and brighter till the full light of day. I love that. I think that's so beautiful. The more deeply we dive into discipleship, the more clarity and hopefulness that we have about life. But that's just the first one. There's more. But wait, there's more. Light is confidence, is the confidence of truth. But light is also the comfort of goodness. The comfort of goodness. Now, I realize that some of what we're talking about is a little abstract. It's a little like, how do you wrap your mind around this? But I think it's important that we understand uh, what we're talking about when we say that Jesus is the light. Most of us are likely familiar with the passage in Matthew chapter 5, verse 16 that says, Let your light shine before men so that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. We know that passage, right? Let your light 
shine so that may see your good works. So we think, well, if I help little old ladies across the street, if I don't rob banks, you know, if I don't use swear words and don't watch dirty movies, that's letting my light shine. And, that, and people will see my good, and then they'll glorify God. And that's part of it. But the, the idea of good, light being connected to good, the idea of good in the Bible is this incredible word. It's so much bigger than just not watching bad movies. It's this huge like, word full of depth and meaning. And I think it's really important that we think about this just for a second. Um, Because we see the word good, and we tend to think of like moral goodness, right? Don't rob banks, don't tell lies, that sort of thing. And that's that's part of it, but that's just a small part of it. In fact, the word, like the word literally means like this inspiring, attractive, like nobility or honorableness or goodness. It's this really big word. So, in, in fact, we would probably use this word to describe the word good that the Bible uses. We would use this word to describe something like music or art, We'd say that that's good. Now, we're not saying that that art is morally good. For example, I have a, a picture up here that I want to show you. Go to the next slide, if you would. This is a, a Da Vinci that recently uh, went for auction. Kind of, people weren't sure it was actually a Da Vinci. It's obviously a picture of Jesus. I guess there's still some question over whether or not it is actually a real Da Vinci picture. But uh, it sold at auction for $450 million. $450 million. The dimensions, it's like, it's, like a, it's like like 18 inches by like 24 inches. It's not a big picture. And you're like, $450 million? Who's got that kind of money? And literally, uh, the auction was anonymous, so they don't know who it was, but there's about 100 people in the world that could have afforded to buy, spend, spend this much money on a piece of artwork that might do that. $450 million. Now, somebody looks at this piece of artwork and is like, wow, that inspires me. I look at this piece of artwork and I'm like, Jesus did not have a perm. Come on. <laughs> There's no way. He's not giving the peace sign holding a crystal ball. Like, whatever, $450 million. But people, some people look at this and they're like, wow. That, is, that moves me. That inspires me. That, that inspires me. I value that so much. It's not like it's technically good, right? It's not what Jesus looked like. We know that, right? Or we're pretty sure of that. I mean, unless he just guessed right, happened to. But it's not like it's, not like it's morally good. It's not about technique. It's not about execution. Uh, but there's something about art, maybe this, maybe other kind of art, that inspires and motivates. Someone was deeply moved by it. Somebody said that is good in that deep sense of the word good. Now, maybe art is not a perfect example for you. Maybe, you know, music. Maybe you have that song that's just like, it's not like he's a great singer or she's a great singer, but the lyrics and the composition and the instrumentality, you're like, that is a good song. That moves me. But maybe a better example, kind of away from the, the fine arts realm, is uh, sports. Like, how can sports be good? Sports. Who cares about sports ball? But, but let, me, let me give you, <laughs> hey, we, we got some enthusiasm for sports ball. Um, but let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. At, at its worst, sports is kind of just, it's all about personal glory and money and people holding out for more money and better contracts, right? You know, and parents yelling at refs and umpires. And that's just t-ball. Like, it gets worse from there. <laughs> but every once in a while, you hear, like, a good story. 
out of sports. Um, and there's enough of them. I've got a, a, a picture. This is one of the many stories. But you hear there's enough of these that have happened, uh, that, that their good has happened, where like there's a basketball team or there's a football team, and they have a special team needs manager that is just, you know, enthusiastic about the sport and wants to be around the players. And so they sign them up, and he gets them water and towels and things like that. But you hear these stories about like maybe toward the end of the season, they're like, you know what, buddy, you, here's a uniform. You're going to play in this game. And he gets so excited, you know, and the, the players are like, they're all excited for him. And, and they're, all, they're all for this one player, and they get excited. And they know it's not about the win. They're not going to do better as a team because they've had this person on their team. But it's like they're excited about it, and they're energetic, and it's cool, and it's enthusiasm. And then this player comes out on the, the, the court, and the other team, inspired by this goodness is like, wow, that's cool. And they kind of get in on the act, and they accidentally turn the ball over to him so he can make a shot. Or as he's carrying the football running down the field, they accidentally miss tackles because they're in on it. It's not morally good per se. It's not technically good. But for some reason, this team, and now this other team, is all for this one person. And when the crowd sees that, when the spectators see that, they get excited about it, and they start cheering. And not only is it this team against this team, and these parents against these parents, Everybody in the room is cheering for this one person, and they are all for him. And this is good. It's not technically good. He's not going to win them the game. He's not, they're breaking the rules in order to be good. They're breaking the rules in order to be good, but everybody in the room is for this person. Now, before you get too distracted by phones going off in the service, let's just breathe and come back. That's more for me, really, than for you. But everybody in the room is for this one individual, and it is good. It is good. This is not about being good at a sport. It's not about being good at the rules. It's about a good, a noble, honorable thing being done in this moment. If you were to ask John, what was it like to be around Jesus? He would say, Jesus was good. And not simply that he didn't go to bad movies. And that he didn't swear and use cuss words. But that he was for you. That when you interacted with him, he was for you. It wasn't about what he got out of this relationship. When we interact with people, it's so much about how does this reflect on me? How does this look, how does this look for me? But Jesus was for the other people. Which is why the moral outcasts, the bad people of society were drawn to him. Church, we struggle with that. Moral outcasts of our society are not drawn to the church. And I think it's probably because we are not good in the same way that Jesus was. Maybe we're crossing our I's and dotting our T's and we're not watching things we shouldn't watch. And we're not saying words we shouldn't watch. But we are not for the world like Jesus was. Discipleship is being about being transformed in the image of Jesus. That we rise above pettiness and selfishness. That we reflect his goodness for other people. Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 5 verse 8, he says, for you were once darkness, and we're going to talk about darkness next week, and, and I think there's a lot to explore there, but you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. You're reflecting that truth and that goodness of Jesus. Live as children of light, and then look how, look how he describes this, for the fruit of light consists in all goodness. It's not just moral 
doing the right thing, checking the list. It's that honorable, noble, I am for other people. This is good. And righteousness, there's the morality for those of you that are worried. And truth, that confidence in truth that we talked about previously. There's so much more we could talk about, but I want to deal with one last question. Because I think that as I, as I was thinking about this topic, this is the question that rattled around in my mind. I, I can't be around Jesus like John was. I can't have that experience, that moving experience that one might have being in the presence of Jesus. Right? I can't have that. He's not around anymore. I can't be with him. Right? Or maybe are we missing something? One of my favorite funerals um, ever, uh, I've done enough funerals in my life to have a favorite, um, was a gentleman by the name of Harold Fowler. And I've talked about him a little bit before, but it's just because of the type of person he was. Um, Harold came to Christ late in life. He was 75 years old when he found Jesus. And his wife had been a Christian her entire life, and he just didn't want to have anything to do with it. She passed away, and, and it just it, it deeply affected him. And he was drawn to Christ in a way that I have seen few people ever drawn to Christ. It changed him in a way that we've seen few people change. Um, and he, was, he had this enthusiasm for Jesus that you don't, I mean, like, like you literally see at football games or, or Black Friday shopping. Like it was just a deep enthusiasm for who Jesus was and bringing him to other people. He literally wanted other people to experience Jesus like he had. And he was just full of joy all the time. And it wasn't an act because the cynical part of me sometimes would be like, is, this, is he really always like this? Is this real? Does this go all the way to the core? And I remember one time uh, he, I, I was greeting people at church. This is back in, uh, in Iowa. I was greeting people. And, you know, he showed up and he said, uh, oh, I said something like, hey, glad you could be at church today. And he was like, glad I could be at church. I'm always going to be at church. What are you talking about? Like, he was almost a little offended that I was like, oh, nice to see you today. I'm always going to be here. And for some reason, you know, young, inexperienced little preacher was, I, I thought, like, I just want to dig a little bit and see how far down does this go. And I just, this is a little sense of who Harold was and who I am, I guess, too. But I, I, I said, oh, you, you'll always be at church? Like, really, always? And he's like, yeah, I'll always be at church. Well, Harold, what, uh, what if your car breaks down? Well, I'll call somebody to bring me a ride. Uh, well, uh, what if nobody can bring you? Well, then I'll walk. Well, Harold, what, uh, what if something happens and you can't walk? Then I'll crawl to church, you know, like, just kept going more and more. And this is who he was, just deep, deep down inside. He loved Jesus. And it just wasn't just about church attendance. It was just about everything. Everything about his faith had that same sort of earnest enthusiasm. And people told me, I didn't know him before he was a Christian, but people told me he had a dark past. I thought that was, I just couldn't reconcile that with the person that I knew. But what was coolest uh, is that his funeral felt like a formality. And I mean that in the sense like it felt like he had crossed over into a life with Christ long before. And we were just doing this little ceremony to get it out of the way. And there was no sadness. There were no tears of sorrow. It was pure joy because of how well Harold reflected Christ in his life. But here's the cool thing I think about this as I thought about this. It, knowing Harold, I did not want to be like Harold. I wasn't drawn to Harold. I didn't want to live the life Harold lived because he reflected Christ so well that it drew me to Christ himself. 
it wasn't about him. It was about what was he walking toward? What direction was he going? That's where I want to go to. And I think about Harold every once in a while. He's obviously long since passed, but every time I think about him, it points back to Christ. And I think that's the most amazing thing. This is the important part of what we're talking about. You may find goodness and truth in the world. You will. You'll find glimpses of it. But you will find the full light of truth and goodness only in Jesus Christ. Only in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we are so uh, grateful. Lord, we know sometimes that we have just stumbled into the light. We have stumbled into a relationship with you because we grew up in the church or because somebody, uh, you know, grabbed us by the ear and pulled us. But Lord, we are thankful that we're here. And Lord, I understand that we don't always understand the, the, the depth of what we have been given, the depth of what we've been blessed with. But I just pray today that you would help us peel back the layers a little bit. Help us see Christ for who he really is. Help us see the light of Christ. And Lord, I just pray that we would deeply reflect that because we see him clearly and we point others toward him. Lord, we thank you for blessing us with the lives that we have. We are sorry for when we we take trips to the darkness and we just pray that we would continue to walk in the light. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You are dismissed.